I'm Dean Jackson. He's Joe Polish. And this is the I Love Marketing Podcast. And Joe Polish, and I'm excited about this uh, this episode of I Love Marketing because you know, although we're, we're, we're going to interview record. a person, well, wait, say this again. You're talking over me now. Maybe. Well, that's okay. We that's what we do. Uh, this <laughs> this may be a record for us, actually. Why is that? What we're about to say. Well, the person okay. on that we're going to talk with here has more New York Times bestsellers than I believe anybody we've talked to on I Love Marketing so far in 200 and whatever number of episodes we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so first off, this is this this individual is a very a good friend of ours. I've known him for, oh God, 15-something years. His name is David Bach. I'm going to read his actual bio. This will be the only part of the, the episode that I do any reading. But David, you're in New York right now. I'm in Arizona. Dean's in uh, in Orlando. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, you guys. It's so good to be with you today. So fun. Yeah, yeah this is going to be a great episode because we're <laughs> going to talk about not what people are probably thinking. But let me first, for people that do not know who David is, let me read his bio and then they'll have a gist. And then we're going to get into some really, really valuable um, content and, and, and advice for people. So David Bach has helped millions of people around the world take action to live and finish rich. He's one of the most prolific financial authors of all all time, with 11 consecutive national bestsellers, nine consecutive New York Times bestsellers, with more than 7 million books in print translated into over 18 languages. Uh, His most popular books are The Automatic Millionaire. Uh, That book was uh, number one on New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and USA Today. He's one of the only authors uh, of all time to have four books at once on all four bestseller lists. Uh, his Finish Rich seminars, including Smart Women Finish Rich and Smart Couples Finish Rich, have been attended by over a million people throughout the United States and Canada. He's a media regular. He's done thousands of appearances on television, radio, and print over the past 20 years. He's appeared on the Today Show over 100 times as a regular contributor, and he's been on Oprah six times. He's also quite the entrepreneur. Uh, he's the founder of Finish Rich Media. His programs have done over 100 million in sales, and he comes to the table of financial education with a lifetime of investment experience. Most recently, uh, David was the vice chairman of um, an RIA, which managed uh, $15 billion for its clients. And early in his career, he was a senior vice president of Morgan Stanley and a partner of the Bot Group, which during his tenure managed more than half a billion dollars for individual investors. In consideration of all of David uh, Bach's past and present success, what he's most proud of is his 12-year-old son, Jack, and his five-year-old son, James. And so David is married and lives with his family in New York City. And you can learn all kinds of stuff about him by going to his website, which is finishrich.com and on facebook.com forward slash David Bach for more information. So uh, David, like I mentioned in the bio, you're a nine times New York Times bestselling author. You've helped millions of people change their financial lives. But, you know, beyond the bio and everything that I just just read, uh, how do you describe yourself and, and what you actually do so people listening <laughs> kind of get, get who this dude is? 
You know, I just tell people I'm Joe Polish's friend, and then I'm in. Um, of course, of course. That works you know, for a lot of people. I mean, so, um, it's, first of all, Joe, Dean, it's great to be with you guys. And, it's, it ha- you know, it's, it's so fun doing this. I mean, you and I have known each other now since 1997, which is a little frightening because it means we're getting older. But I guess that's a good thing, too. Um, right. <laughs> you, you know, how do, I, how do I tell people what I do? I'm not one of those guys that believes you need an elevator speech. Um it really depends on who I'm talking to and where I am in life. Um, you know, I I basically look at myself as a teacher. I love teaching people how to be smarter with their money. And depending on who I'm talking to, I'm like, you know what, I, 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 I'm an entrepreneur. I run a company that teaches people how to be smarter with their money. And I've done that through books, and I do that through television and radio, and I have seminars that are done all over the country. And at my core... I'm just a kid that grew up, you know, kind of a geek, really interested in money, because that's what my family did. I started going to my dad's investment classes at a really young age. My dad was teaching investment classes. He was a financial advisor, and I started doing going to his classes at nine. So I was teaching my friend's parents how to buy muni bonds by the age of 12, which is, you know, not normal. And I've been, you know, I've been doing it really ever since. And I actually, it's funny because I... I just got back from California, and we just had a retirement party for my dad. And my dad is 75. He just retired after 50 years of being a financial advisor. And I almost get choked up saying this, but as I was, as I was toasting my dad last week, you know, I, I said to my dad, you know, he gets all the credit because I learned everything from him and incredibly basic lessons, that I, but they all are timeless. And I've just been teaching them for now almost 25 years. So, you know, I just, I'm a teacher. I love to teach people how to be smarter with their money so they can live a great life. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're also you're also a a, a fantastic marketer, and, and since we're obviously on, I love marketing right now. Why do, why do you love marketing? I mean, what's your perspective on it? Because you don't sell a hundred million dollars worth of stuff and do all the things that you've done without knowing how to tell a story and get a message out and and, and embrace the fact that people need to you know be taught and need to learn, which is all part of of marketing. Well, it's true. It is, it is all marketing. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, from an education standpoint, I'm always marketing to people that this is easy. You can do it. Go take action. It changes your life. Um, but it's all marketing, right? I mean, from, from, from growing my financial planning business at Morgan Stanley to creating what became the original platform, Smart Women Finish Rich, um, I'm a, you know, at my core, I am a marketer. And when I started teaching seminars for women in money, um, I learned very quickly that it was about, you, you had to be, you had to have a passionate story, which I did. I had learned about money from my grandmother, and that was a big part of my story, was how my grandmother had taught me how to invest at a young age, how she'd helped me buy my first stock, my, the story of my grandmother, how she became a self-made millionaire, starting with nothing, her lessons that she taught me that I then went out and shared. And I wrapped all that into a... I always It's a crusade, right? To me, marketing is about a crusade. And my first crusade... In the 90s, when you and I met, my first crusade, my first passion was I wanted to go out and I wanted to teach one million women how to take charge of their financial life so that they could protect themselves and their families. 
And that was my crusade. And that started with a little class that I created in Lafayette, California, and originally taught to 100 of my clients. Um, and I went to the local newspaper, the Moraga Sun, and got the Moraga Sun, because I was a local boy in this little tiny suburb, to write a story about that. And that was my first media appearance, and that was my first live event. And from there, I just kept running with it until it, you know, I took that dream and made it real. And I've basically been doing that with crusade after crusade after crusade. And to me, every marketing campaign we've created is about what's the crusade, what's the purpose, what's the point, what are you trying to get out into the world? Now that that is such a great that that's such a great point too to even think about it as a crusade because that's much that's a much different mindset and you come from a a far deeper place of motivation and drive to do something when you are on a crusade versus if you just need to like sell something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, I, it, it, it's it's yeah. it's a it's a big mental perspective shift, you know. Well, and it, t- it takes you overall, you know, at least for me, in the beginning especially, you know, people see you, by the time they see your success, they think you're an overnight success. They don't see the 10 years that went in before that. They, they don't see the times that I taught classes and seven people showed up. They don't see the book signing where one person came and they didn't buy a book. They don't see every little local cable show I did at 5.30 in the morning. They don't see all the Motel 6s that you stay in and the college radio shows that you did before anybody knew who, you know, who, knew who I was. But I loved every part of that because I was so passionate about what my purpose was that I wasn't focused on, well, you know, I was focused on the number of of helping a million people. I wasn't focused on selling a million books. I knew if I helped a million people, the book sales, this, the money, the that all that would take care of itself, and, and it ultimately did. I mean, I am actually one of those people where I, I truly went with my passion and my purpose, and, you know, love what you do and the money will follow. That actually happened for me. I know that's not always the case, but that did happen for me. It didn't happen for me overnight, but it happened for me over a decade. Wow. That's really interesting, too. You know, just what you're saying about, I think having a mission-based purpose really helps you drive through all of that because a lot of times you see people who look at you, they look at people who are 10 years in, you know, when people start, you start showing up on people's radar uh, and they aspire to being you and they want to jump in and start there and they don't, they're not willing to put in the, the time because it's not a mission-based thing. It's just like a, just a money thing. And if you're doing it completely money motivated, you don't have that passion that, that gets you amped about getting up at five thirty to do a local TV show. I think you're right. That's brilliant, actually. Well, and, and, and sometimes, you know, like my passions have always sort of at its core been around some form of financial education, but the the things that I've talked about have changed. I mean, I, I went from smart women finish rich to teaching couples, smart couples finish rich. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of that was just I evolved, right? I was single when I wrote smart women finish rich. Then I got married. Then I went through the challenges of what that's like financially when you have to start putting everything together. And I started, you know, working with a lot of couples. And then I became super passionate about how do you help couples have a great life together and align their values and, you know, work on their money together. And that became my new passion. 
And, you know, after smart couples finished rich, I started having people come to me and they were still confused and they kept, you know, unfortunately pointing out to me that as much as I had taught them, it was still too complicated and they wanted it simpler (laughs) and they only wanted to know one thing that they needed to do and what was the one thing. And I was so frustrated by the fact that even though I thought I had done a good job of teaching, people still were confused that in that frustration, the book, The Automatic Millionaire, was born. And that became my overriding passion for over a decade, which was how do I just make financial planning so simple that I can teach it with just a couple steps? And The Automatic Millionaire, my dream was to touch 10 million people's lives and empower 10 million people to pay themselves first. And with that mission and that purpose, you know, that came true too. And um, so I think it, it comes back to really how many people are you trying to help? How are you trying to serve? Why are you trying to serve? And then the marketing gets built around that. Yeah, you know, plus the, 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 the fact that you niched it is just such an, an important thing about picking a target market. Is that what you're trying to say, Dean? I was just going to say, I don't want to let that slide that here you are. So you had a choice. You come out, you wanted to help a million people, yet you narrowed your focus to women. And a lot of people might say, well, you just cut your potential audience in half. But the reality is by narrowing it to women, you get 10 times the attention of women than if it was just for everybody. You know, by narrowing your focus, you get a different level of oh, well, this is for me, because it's specific. It's such a great uh, example of it, you know, of of really narrowing yourself to a target market, even when it seems counterintuitive, you know? What what if he was like smart Italians finish rich or something like that? What do you you think? Well, let's talk about, let's point something out here for a second, because it's really important, you know, Every single thing about Smart Women Finish Rich that worked with me as the person teaching it should not have worked because I'm a man. I'm a man who created a program for women and money. When I went out to create that class, everybody told me not to do it. I was told that there would, first of all, be no interest, that no women would come. I was told that there would be no money in women and money. When when I taught the first class and I went to the newspaper that ultimately wrote the first story about me, they weren't even convinced it was real. I had to convince them, no, this is a real class. This is, I'm really doing this to be a service. Here's what I'm doing. Because nobody was teaching classes for women and money. They thought it was a scam. I had to prove them, no, come to the class. Watch me teach it. When I took the book idea to publishers in 1997, Publishers were like, first of all, there were no books for women and money. You know, Susie Orman had just come out with her book. They were, I mean, literally had just come out. The book before was from the 70s. And the publisher said to me, women aren't going to buy a book on women and money. We'll buy it, but we, we don't think it will sell. You'll be lucky if you sell 15,000 copies. If you sell 30,000 copies, it'll be a miracle. And I found one publisher that was like, you know what, this could be evergreen. We see the potential here. And, you know, Smart One Fish Rich has over a million copies in print. And, and after I did it and it worked and then people wanted to teach my seminar and that became a whole multi-million dollar business itself. After it worked, everybody's like, oh my God, he's, you know, he's a genius. But most people did not believe 
that it would work when I went out to try to make it work. It took mm. a lot of, you know, I just was so, so um, stubborn and so passionate and, and basically unstoppable that I forced it to work. Um, and I think that's an important thing for people to hear because a lot of times, you know, your idea, which you think is brilliant, if not everybody's going to go, oh, my God, that's the greatest idea in the world. You just, if you believe in it, you have to keep pushing it. And I think that has to come from a place of, of personal, true, deep-hearted passion. Because if you're waiting for the money to show up right away, a lot of times it doesn't. You know, it, it can take a few years. But man, when it works and, and it aligns with your per, your passion and your purpose, there's nothing better. No, that is that is awesome. And there's some great lessons there about perseverance, about believing in yourself, about having people tell you something will not work. And in spite of that, having whatever, wherever that came from you, be it the gut feeling, be it the fact that you didn't have any other option and you had to make it work. I mean, I don't know what all the different motivations were. It was probably a combination of all those and many other things that I'm not aware of. Uh, what would you say to the entrepreneur that has not yet cracked the code and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're being told something can't work. I mean, cause there's a lot of truth to, you know, persistence in a direction that's not going to yield anything is a waste of time also. You know, the, it's kind of like the best way to get out of a hole is to quit digging it. So how do you know the difference between, you know, you're working on something that has some fruit if you harvest it versus there ain't no juice in that squeeze. You know, you can squeeze all day long. You're never going to get something out of it. I mean, a lot of times you just simply don't know, but you, you said, I forced it to work. I had to make it work. And, you know, the reason you're successful is because you have, you, you, you were determined. Uh, the, the question becomes, you know, how do, how do you, how do you parlay what you know and that wisdom to people that, you know, they're kind of like, they're, they're unsure or they're in, you know, similar situations. People are telling them they're crazy. You know, their ideas aren't going to work. I mean, what do you say to those people? Well, I think, first of all, the journey of entrepreneurism is a tough journey, right? Yep, totally. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I read something, I, our friend, you know, Darren Hardy uh, recently put out a book and there was a, and I gave him a testimonial for his new book and there was a quote in his book. I think he said something like 99% of entrepreneurism is just, maybe 97% of it's miserable, something like that. And I thought, well, that's really extreme, right? But entrepreneurism is, is, is tough. I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the big question that all entrepreneurs have, and including myself, right, is that you're working on something, and if it's not working right away, when do you pivot? Right? You know, do you throw in the towel? Do you pivot? Most great businesses are a result of major pivots, right? I mean, you can go through so many, whether it's Uber or Pinterest or, you know, Airbnb. I mean, every major super successful business at some point you know, was a pivot, very few, meaning that, you know, they went in one direction, it didn't work, and they changed directions. Um, You know, our friend Dan Sullivan, we've been, you know, I met through Dan Sullivan, we've been in that strategic coach program for forever. Dan calls it, you know, strategic byproducts. You know, you're working on something, and you go towards a goal, and then the next thing you know, something else has come out as a result. Um, I think that that happens all the time in business. I mean, I can go through my career over 25 years, and nothing was a straight line. If I go back to the beginning and I take Smart Women Finish Rich, my original plan was to teach, was to have the Bach Group, which was in the Bay Area, to grow that into an organization that would be in 50 cities inside the Morgan Stanley system where we'd have, um, we'd teach classes in 50 cities. And I took that idea to the firm 
and the firm turned it down. And not only did the firm turn it down at the time, but at the last minute, the firm, because everything had to go through, it's called compliance approval, the firm decided to not let me say that I worked at Morgan Stanley. And so I wrote this book, you know, and I thought, well, God, I'll get a lot of clients out of this. And the next thing I know, the firm wouldn't let me say where I worked. So it was like, it's a David Box, senior vice president of a major investment firm. So at the time, I was devastated by this, right? Well, you fast forward that to about 120 days later. And because the book, the book comes out and it doesn't say what firm I work at, every single firm on Wall Street starts using my book. And every advisor starts buying my book. And the next thing I know, we're licensing a seminar program, and every firm on Wall Street is now using it because it didn't say what firm I worked at. And, And I give that example because a lot of times when you're working on something and you think you just failed, that failure ironically turns out to be the recipe for the next big success. So I, I guess I tell somebody right now, if you're in dark days and you think, you know what, what you're doing, is just, you're, you're failing. The reality is you're on your journey and around the corner may be the next major success. Yeah. yeah that know, is... It's an interesting uh, point that you were making, though, Joe, too, about how do you know, like, you know, David, you stuck with it for all of that time. And, you know, what I always think about with that is how, um, you know, appropriately thinking about financial things, all the big gains in a compound interest curve happen at the end of the curve where the reward that you're getting is disproportionate to the effort that you're putting in. And in the beginning, you're putting in a lot more effort than the, than the reward would seem to be. But if you've got that crystal clear vision that you know that you're on your way to helping a million people and you just helped 20 people at the Barnes and Noble tonight. And then you're going to help, you know, a a thousand people at this, uh, at at a bigger event. Every one of them is reaching and getting bigger and bigger and your reach is growing um, over time, but you were committed and stuck on that, on that track. That's exactly right. And I'll give you a great, I'll give you an example. Take that like to Oprah for a second. So yeah. I, people, you know, when I showed up on Oprah, it was, it was 2004. And I, I went on Oprah with the automatic millionaire and we launched that book on Oprah. And that was an unbelievable experience. You know, we, we went from having, I had a, it had taken five years to have a million books in print. And within six months of being on Oprah, I had done another million books and the automatic millionaire became the number one book of the year. It was on the bestseller list for 31 weeks, and that message to this day is still out there all over the world. But where I'm going with this Oprah story is it took 10 years to get on Oprah. I had pitch letters going back to Oprah from 1994. I was turned down to be on that show three separate times where I had been in pre, no, been what they call pre-interviewed, didn't get on the show, and somebody else basically got on the show with what I thought was my show. So, um, but I just never gave up. And, you know, by the time I was on, by the time I was on Oprah sitting on those little yellow chairs with her, the truth was that they, they were right. I wasn't ready in 94. By the time I was on in 2004, I had 10 years of experience, of media experience. I had been on every single TV show but hers. And I was ready. So sometimes, I I give that example because sometimes the success that you're hoping for 
right now, you're actually not even ready for it. You need the the time to build for your moment. So we're living in a world today where because of the unicorn phenomenon, you know, where people start businesses and a year later their the business is a billion dollars you know, worth. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we're not hearing about a lot of times this this idea that things can take a long time, and we're living in this new world where things are supposed to happen overnight. If they don't happen overnight, it's totally depressing. Um, sometimes if they happen overnight, it was just luck and timing. Most things don't happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, you know, I often use Oprah as an example. Before Oprah was Oprah, she was a local talk show in Chicago, you know, and right. that before that was just a, in, on a, a newscaster, you know I mean? It starts, it starts and you're committed to this whole thing. It's like the Beatles going to Hamburg for four years, you know, playing eight hours a day, every day before they were the Beatles. He's just exactly committed right. to that, you know, it's funny because, you know, the way that um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who have things that could appeal to huge audiences and they want to start just come out of the gate and be at that million person level of impact. But, you know, the reality is if you're going to help all the women in the world, uh, you know, you're going to help a million women in the in America become um, financially um, independent, if you're going to help them with their money, you might as well start by helping all the women in Poughkeepsie, you know? I, I, think, there's, <laughs> I, I think there's total truth to that. And then, and then with that being said, here's the other thing. I'll flip this on its head for a second because this is a podcast that you, you know, we're creating right now basically like for nothing. And this podcast is going to go online and hopefully like lots of people will listen to it and it gets exposed all over the world. Well, the amazing thing about how the world has changed, that was not possible 20 years ago. And today right. you can literally sit in front of your computer and shoot a video, and tomorrow if some crazy thing happens, and it does, the whole world could find out about you. There's a video going on right now about these two women that are, are talking about Donald Trump. I don't know if you guys saw this video yet, but this yeah. video was Yeah, the two, the, two the two black women? Yes. So this video, yeah. I, I, I see this video because I don't know where the news feed was it came through, but I, I literally I go to the video last night, and it's about these two ladies riffing on Megyn Kelly and Donald Trump. And I click on the video. I watch the whole thing. I'm cracking up. I go. I say to my wife, oh, my God, you watch. This thing is going to go viral. The next thing I know, I'm on Drudge Report. It's on the front of the Drudge Report. I mean, I, I haven't even looked today, but I bet you 10 million people will have seen this video in 48 hours. Now, that could never have happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So the amazing thing about right now is that it's easier in many ways, if you can break through, to get your message out to so many people in such a short period of time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But there, but there is something that you said about you 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 know needing to be ready for your moment, and then people do have sort of a uh, I, I think a, a flawed perception because they see like you call them the unicorns, where these billion dollar companies, you know, crop up very quickly, but you know really building a foundation and, and, and being prepared for this sort of success, not as a cop-out that you should wait forever in order for something to happen. But the point is that there are times, I mean, I was watching 
um, just, you know, recently, uh, they did a segment on Ted, uh, Ted.com on 60 minutes and they were interviewing Chris Anderson. And I had, um, a, a real brief lunch with Chris Anderson at Google Zeitgeist last year before he was getting ready to take off to catch his plane. And I, in last year, I actually uh, met with, uh, spent six hours, uh, with Richard Saul, uh, Worman, who was the original founder of Ted. And, uh, basically he sold it to Chris, Chris bought it in, I think, 1999, but there was like an eight-year period, I believe, from the very first TED conference to when they did the second one, and then Richard was doing these conferences, and, and, and Chris Anderson, who now owns TED, you know, saw it and loved it and offered him like $13 million, and he bought it, and now he's turned it into TED, but it, you know, it, if people people would think that, oh, this thing just happened because of videos online, which they did happen, but it was years. I mean, we're going, I don't even know how long, but probably a couple decades. I think 84, I think, is when it started, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's like a lot of people see these things, and they don't see the level of work and persistence and everything. And so I think the biggest takeaway from just listening to you, David, and I know a lot about you. I mean, we've done numerous interviews. You've spoken at my conferences. We've hung out a lot. You're in Genius Network. I mean, there's all kinds of things that that we've spent just hearing this, though, just reinforces that if you want something to happen, you have got to be prepared to make it happen. And you... And if you're getting rejected, at first it may sound like, oh, you know, I'm missing an opportunity. But in reality, it was actually just preparing you for when the big opportunity came. So you have learned how to take a lot of things that people would perceive as mishaps or unfortunate or why didn't it happen, you know, that sort of thing. And you've, you've just parlayed it. Do you still have that level of drive and persistence as you've gotten older or i mean how, how do you how do you perceive things now because we're going to switch gears in a little bit and talk about this one year sabbatical that you took uh what where's your where's your drive and persistence right now compared to where it was when you were early on in your career you know it's such a good question um and i i ask myself that too because what happens in life so I have a five-year-old whose name is James, and my 12-year-old's name is Jack. Um, I'm still really driven, and I'll talk about how, you know, what I did to in many ways completely, I, I say not recharge my battery, but replace my batteries. I'm probably as motivated and as inspired today as I've ever been, but there's a reason for that. The reason is I took a full year sabbatical, and I'll talk about that in a second. But before I took the sabbatical, um, if, if I look at my life the last five, six, seven years, I've really spent a lot of time being a dad. So I've, I've, I've slowed down the amount of work I've done, specifically the last five years. Like I actually, I put a book out a year for a decade. I actually put 12 books out in a decade. And in the last, I haven't put a book out now since 2011. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of re-gearing up right now. In the last five years, I've just been really engaged being a dad. And I will say, becoming a father... And, you know, it candidly reprioritized me. I mean, I was walking my son James to camp, and I'm going to pick him up as soon as we're done today from camp. And I thought, you know, I only have, like, as he's five and a half. I'm going to get to hold his hand. I take my kids to school and I pick him up. I'm going to get to hold his hand to camp and to school for about six more months. <laughs> and I know that because it was right around the third or fourth month of kindergarten. And now my older son stopped holding my hand. And, you know, those, this, this time that I've had with my kids, like, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I think my priorities have definitely shifted. I'm very family-focused. 
and yet I'm still super passionate and motivated. Um, and one of the things that taking the sabbatical did was really give me a lot of family time and also completely kind of re-energized me because I think I took my sabbatical. I took a year off in 2013. I'm, I'm going to be 49 in November. And I, I basically got, I think 46 was the age where I would say I hit burnout. And we can talk about that here in a second. Um, but at 46, I felt 46. I'd say I felt 50. I started thinking, wow, you know, I guess, I guess when you get older, you just start to feel tired all the time. You just start to feel shittier. <laughs> and what I found is that that's not actually true. I was just tired um, because I, today I'm not tired. And today I feel like I'm 30. And part of that's because I took a long break. And then the other thing is I took a meditation. And we could talk about meditation too. I mean, I just I meditated right before this call. Um, right. And meditation has totally changed my life. So long answer to a short question. Sorry no, no. I mean, it's, 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 it's good. And I, so yeah, let's, let's shift. You know what? Uh, I want to, I want to do this real quick because I think the remainder of this episode, I would love to talk about taking care of yourself. Cause you, you just made a really important point. You said you, you, you were burnt out at 46, you hit 50 and you, you felt, you know, you, you felt that. And, and then you just commented, now you feel like you're 30. And I think a lot of people, they don't, and, and I certainly have gone through these stages. I mean, I've had a really uh, intense uh, year and, and I feel physically like, you know, I work out every day. I do meditate. Um, I, we both do TM, which is great. And, you know, there, there, there's just been a lot on my plate with, you know, remodeling a house. It took two years and all kinds of things that I typically wouldn't get sympathy from a lot of people for unless they're an entrepreneur doing stuff saying, oh, I kind of get it. You know, you're, it's not yeah. like you're sitting around just, you know, spending your money and you got all kinds of free time. I mean, I've put a lot into it. And there's a lot of people that I know because of just modern life that are completely burnt out and they don't even know it. So coming from a guy like you who had all of this incredible success uh, that could keep going decided to kind of shut it down and to really focus on your family and focus on you. And in, in, in you, what a great line! You should not recharge my batteries, but replace them. So I want to I want to spend a, a good chunk of time talking about that. Before we hop there, though, just if you had to sum up a few, maybe four or five of your best tips techniques, strategies for building and keeping well since we talk so much about your financial stuff. I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't at least mention some things related to money uh, since you've written so many books or anything that you would recommend directing people to. Then I want to talk about the sabbatical stuff. Okay, sure. So um, so I'll, I'll just say the, the, the book I would recommend everybody read if you haven't read it is The Automatic Millionaire. Because when I wrote that book, my goal was to create a play, basically be able to teach you in 90 minutes how to change your entire financial life in less than an hour. And about 95% of what you need to know to become a millionaire or more is in the automatic millionaire. And I say 95% because really everything you need to know to, to reach your first million is in the automatic millionaire. Between a million to 10 million, the strategies start to change a little bit. But to, you know, to really the, the, the primary things that you need to do are in that book, and I'll, and I'll just go through a handful of them. So these, these are so timeless. I didn't invent these concepts. It's just what fundamentally works. And the, the first most important thing is that as soon as you earn income, you need to pay yourself first. The, the, the first 
thing you have to do when money comes in is you have to pay yourself first. And that means that the first dollar that you earn every day, whether you're an entrepreneur or you work hourly, you need to take part of that that dollar, and I recommend at least 10 cents, and you take 10 cents of every dollar and you pay yourself first. Now, that's that's a middle-class number. So if you basically want to be struggling, 10, 10 cents of every dollar, 10%, would be your starting number. But really, to start to build real wealth, you need to be taking 15 to 20% of your gross income off the top, paying yourself first automatically. And that's going automatically from wherever the income's coming directly into a savings account. And that, for most people, it's a retirement account. And, you know, for those who are entrepreneurs, that means because you got a lot of self-employed people listening, a lot of freelance people, um, that means that you're opening up something as simple as a SEP IRA, a self-employed IRA account or a solo 401k plan. And as that check's getting deposited, you're immediately pulling money from where it got deposited and you're fully funding your retirement account. And that's for entrepreneurs, that's really step one. And it's, it's basically about profits first coming to you first. The fundamental mistake that entrepreneurs make, and this is because their accountants teach them to do this, is they run all of their expenses for their business so they, have, so they pay less in taxes. And what entrepreneurs do, and these are good people making 50, 100, 200, I've seen people do this with a million dollars in income. They run all their expenses through their business, and at the end of the year, they're like, hey, I didn't pay any taxes. And then you're like, congratulations, you're still broke. And what's so sad is that the entrepreneur dream is I'm going you know, to have a business, and I'm going to have financial freedom, and that someday maybe you'll sell the business. And that's a huge myth, because most entrepreneur businesses are not saleable. Very few are. If they are saleable, they're saleable for low multiples. They're not saleable like unicorns. They're saleable for maybe one or two times revenue. <laughs> and so, you know, what you have is a lot of people who basically have jobs working for themselves, and they're not a great boss for themselves, and they don't keep any income. So paying yourself first is number one. And then number two is making everything automated. All the money's, all the financial flow of your money should be automated. The bills should be paid automatically through a system. The savings accounts should be saved automatically. I teach people to save money into four categories. Pay yourself first, which is retirement. Your security money, which is to protect you in case of emergency. Your, what I call your dream account, which is where you're putting money for things between now and retirement. And then the fourth thing is philanthropy, charity. And so I teach how to automate those buckets, if you will. I call them baskets. Uh, because those baskets, the money can be automatically pulled from your accounts into these different categories. And the more you automate your financial life, you get that financial life running on an autopilot, then it doesn't take discipline and it doesn't take time. And then the last thing I'll just say is that it's all about is real estate. You know, you and I have talked about real estate a lot over the years. The, you have to own a home. You can't build wealth renting. And the secret for entrepreneurs is to buy a piece of real estate and have your business rent that real estate. So to buy a piece of real estate, which you've done, and so many of my friends, because I've hammered them on this, you buy a building or you buy a house or you buy a condo, you put that property in an LLC, and you have your business rent back that real estate. And then over the next 10, 15 years, your business will buy that real estate free and clear, and you'll own that asset. And in many cases, I've seen this, you know, year in and year out, the real estate will ultimately be worth more than the businesses.
So it, that was yeah. it. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So I'm glad I asked you that, and that's some really good advice. So awesome. Thank you. So let's go. Let's go to uh, this. This basically replacing your batteries. I mean, I think a lot of people would love to yeah, figure out how do you mentally prepare yourself and how do you actually do that without, you know, do you, did you have to uproot your life? You know, all that sort of stuff. So I'll let you just kind of tell the story. So in, in 2012. Um, I was in a program that you and I are both in, and I, I, I've gone through the process of 10xing my income and 25xing my income and 50xing my income. And I was working again on what a 10x would look like, how I would 10x my income, meaning growing my income by 10 times and growing my business by 10 times. And I had this realization in the middle of doing that that what I really wanted was to 10x my life. <laughs> I wanted more. I didn't. I didn't want. I didn't need more income. What I needed was more life. And, you know, and I'm going to say that as somebody who's always been pretty decent about balance. I mean, I've taken a lot of free days, if you will, and a lot of vacation time. But I just felt like what I wanted was to have more lifetime. And and so the thing I started really asking myself is, well, you know, A, do I want to retire? And and I was 46. This was was in 2012, um, which seems like a really young age to retire, quite frankly. And I started going, you know, I don't really know that's what what I want to do is retire. I thought, you know, what I want to do is just I want to take a year off. And what happened was my wife asked me a fateful question in 2012. She asked me, what do I want for my birthday? And it was on a night that I was having a hard time sleeping, and my wife's a big planner. And so she took out this pad of paper, and she's like, what do you want for your birthday? If you can't sleep, let's talk about it. And I looked at her, and I said, you know what I want is a year off. And she started going, what are you talking about? And I said, I, I want a year off. I, I want to not work. I want to not – she said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to write. I don't want to do television shows. I don't want to speak. I don't want to travel. I just – want to be a dad. I want to do what other people get to do. I want to take my kids to school. I want to go to the events. I want to pick them up. I want to be in the neighborhood. I want to be home. And she looked at me and she said, well, why don't you do that then? And, and I remember looking at her and I said, how am I going to do that? Do you know, do you know? And I start going through the list of all the things I have on my plate, right? Because a lot of us, we start to have our years booked out a year in advance or two years in advance. There are probably some people who are listening to this that have their calendar booked out three years. But I'll make a point here. Most people don't have their calendars booked out more than a year. And so when I was bitching about this, it was, it was early in 2012. What I, what I realized in the middle of my bitching was, you know what, I am pretty booked up for 2012, but come 2013, there's really nothing on my calendar I couldn't cancel. And then I started bitching about how much money we spent and how expensive it would be for me to take a year off. And, and she looked at me and she said, don't we do all the stuff that you talk about in your books? And I said, yeah. And she said, so could you afford to take a year off? And I, I said, yeah. And she said, let me ask me, how many years could you afford to not work? And so, again, I started bitching about how expensive our lifestyle was and, uh-huh. and how much money we spend living in New York. And, I, and she said, yeah, but you didn't answer the question. How long could we afford for you to not work in New York? And I said, okay, fine. I, we could afford for me to not work for at least 20 years in New York. And she looked at me and she goes, well, then stop bitching and take a year off. <laughs> and oh, and, and she, it literally, she, like, she looked up, she's like, I'm going to sleep now. And you can just stay at the ceiling and stare at the ceiling and stress out for another, you know, for another couple more hours, but I think she just took a year off. And so I started really, you know, thinking about it. And basically I spent 2012 planning how to do that. And, and by 2013, come January, I did. And, 
and, and it's I know I, there's so much I could do a whole hour on this because it's such a strange process to go from I've been working hard since I was 15 and to constantly you know going and going and going and going and charging it's actually not that easy to just stop emotionally. Um, it was kind of confusing. Like my body almost didn't know what to do with itself. Um, but I think what I didn't know in 2012, Joe, is I didn't realize how tired I was until I wasn't tired. Because, you know, I was still in 2012 getting up at 530 in the morning, going to the gym, doing all the stuff I do, going to the Today Show, running my business, getting on planes, doing all the stuff they did feeling charged up and pumped up, but also feeling, like I said, older. Like I was feeling like at 46, like I was in my late 40s or my 50s, and starting to think, God, you know, I mean, I wake up and I'm not energized. And and I just started thinking that, you know, maybe this is what happens. I went to the doctor. I'm like, you know, is, is there something wrong with my blood? Is my nutrition bad? Like, what what is what do I need to do to not feel tired? And, and I think if you re- a lot of people listening don't realize how tired they are. I mean, our friend Ariana Huffington talks about sleep. And, you know, just going and getting a good night's sleep doesn't help you recover. Um, you need more sleep, but you need a lot more sleep. And what I found out when I took the year off, because I slept a lot, after I traveled a ton, I skied a ton and I traveled a ton, and I spent a lot of time with my family traveling, there was like a month where I swear I must have slept 12 to 15 hours a day. And all of a sudden, after that rest, I was like, wow, I can't believe how good I feel. And not having the pressure of so much work on me, um, i got to tell you, it was like a miracle. I mean, it's still to this day, it's like a miracle because I got to feel, I got to feel what it's like to just, I, I still feel it. I still feel so good. And... What I realized going through this sabbatical process is I look at so many of our friends. There, I now realize how exhausted people are because I can see I can see in their eyes how I used to feel, and I don't feel like that anymore. And so, you know, part of what I want to do is inspire more people to take breaks. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be a year off. Um, I think that more of a sh- I think that we should take more time off. I think we're the only country that doesn't. You know, in, in abroad, people take time off. They take way more breaks than we do. The people unplug way more in foreign countries. They live their life. And I think that we really, in this country, especially all of us entrepreneurs, um, we just work too much. We're just way too plugged in. And by the way, unplugging is not a bad thing. And I can talk about that too, but i, I got to let you guys speak. I'm just going and going and going here. No, no. I mean, I, I, I actually... I mean, to hear the, the tale, to hear everything leading up to it and you know, and what's on the tail end of it. I think everybody can fantasize about taking a year off. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. What was your, what was your kind of daily routine while you were, you know, once you got done with the traveling and the skiing and whatever, and you were into now kind of the, the normalcy of a, of a sabbatical, what, what, what kind of things, what did you do? Well, so it's, it's, it's interesting what it felt like to go through this, this sabbatical because, you know, I spent nine years helping people as, a, as an advisor retire. And the fascinating thing about helping people retire is people would come into my office, mostly men, a lot of men especially, that they retire in their, in their 60s. And they've had high-power careers. I had a lot of women like this too, so let me say women and men. And 
Six months after they retired, they would come into my office and they would look so much younger and so rested that they looked like they had a facelift. Like you physically see almost in every case the difference. And that's what happened to me because six months into my sabbatical, people would stop me and they're like, what have you done to yourself? And which kind of is, in a way, you're a little bit offended, right? Because you're like, God, I didn't, I didn't think I looked like shit. But, you know, people would notice physically how much better I looked. So what did I really, you know, if I look at the highlights of my year and my day, if you will, I did three things. I spent more time with my family. That's a big thing. I spent more time with my friends. I got to, re, you know, I had time to finally go and do a lot of friends I hadn't seen, like high school friends and college friends. Um, I, I traveled and connected with a lot of friends, and I spent time with my, my family, my, specifically my parents. Like, I spent... Are you still there, David? Yeah, can you oh. hear me? Oh, yeah, there hey, we, we go. Disappeared I... for just a minute. You uh, said more time, with, more time with your parents, and then you kind of drifted yeah. off in some sabbatical I, so my, cloud. I, I, uh, I spent a month with my parents in August almost. And I had not spent that much time with my parents since since high school. And, and that was a realization, too. Like, you know, I'm so lucky. My parents are alive. They're healthy. They were so thrilled to have me out visiting for an extended period of time because usually I'm flying in for a day or two and leaving. Um, so I just got to live. And, and then parts of it wasn't fancy. I, I mean, one of the weird things for me is, is the – you know, I did do all things. Like, at first, I traveled for three months a ton. Then I came home and had a checklist of things I wanted to get through, and I kind of rushed through all my checklists in the month of April. And by May, I was starting to slow down. And and then I spent a lot of time with myself. You know, I had time to, like, I would take the kids to school and go to the gym and meet a friend for lunch and read a book. Um, and I even had time to be bored, which... When you when you're so busy and you haven't really had time to be bored, it's it's a very uncomfortable feeling at first. Mm. And ironically, around that time, Joe, which you're going to really appreciate this, around that time, you started pestering the shit out of me that I needed to meet Bob Roth and take up meditation. Yep. And at that period where I finally had space in my body and my mind, and I was like, okay, I'm bored, and I need, you know, what's the, what, what, what am I missing here? That's around the time that I went and met with Bob and took up meditation. And, you know, I, I don't think I would have ever taken up meditation, quite frankly, if I hadn't taken the sabbatical. And meditation, you know, I've, I've meditated every day since, since you know, I think it was October 2013, um, and that's life-changing. By the way, you don't have to take a sabbatical to take a meditation. And talk about the chance to have a sabbatical every day. That's what meditation does. It gives you a mini sabbatical every day if you do it right twice a day. And that's the ultimate gift. Um, so that was a huge gift to my sabbatical. Yeah, well, that's which what is... The, next, the, the thing I was going to ask you next is coming back into, now you're kind of uh, back into into working is what have you brought with you from the sabbatical into the new now you're geared up and excited and, and moving forward. What, what have you brought with you from that? How is it different this time? Well, you know, so it's still a journey, right? I'm trying to figure that all out. It happens to be, I came out of my sabbatical and I immediately uh, took on a very big role and became the vice chairman of one of the largest financial planning companies in the country. And so 2014, I kind of hit the ground really hard and um, 
in a way, really jumped back into a whole new role with a ton of new energy. And then I relaunched Smart Women Finish Rich. We relaunched the seminars. I relaunched Smart Couples Finish Rich. I toured the country um, doing Smart Couples Finish Rich seminars. I relaunched media. I did 135 media appearances. I think the difference as I did all that is that um, I did it in a way in which I have more balance. I'm calmer. I feel more centered. And as I go into, you know, this year, um, I actually just recently stepped down from that role. And I think part of it was because I realized I, I was, I didn't like being away from my family. Um, and I think as I, as I spend time right now asking myself, what do I want to do going forward? I'm really looking at how do I design my life specifically around these next five years so that I can do all the things I love to do, but I don't want to be away from my family unnecessarily. You know, I want to be be very selective around what it is that makes me leave and miss a family event. Um, and then with that being said, what I learned in my sabbatical was how to say no, because I spent 2013 saying no to everything. And, you know, when you're used to saying yes to everything and you start to say no, you have a lot of, at least I did, I had a lot of guilt. Um and I'm trying to continue to keep that no muscle <laughs> going so that I've got the balance to, to do, to do all, you know, spend time with myself, spend time with my family, spend time with my friends, and yet continue with my purpose and my passion. Um, so I'm a work in progress still. Only the beauty is right now I have a lot of energy for that work in progress. No, that, that is, you know, keeping the no muscle going, I think is, uh, is a huge thing. We don't, one of the things I learned about myself is in the process of trying to be generous and trying to be useful and caring and um, just being, you know, being a giver, uh, not being a taker. And what I've learned, though, is I've really uh, sacrificed a lot of um, what's important to me in my attempts to be helpful and useful to other people. And, and I always want to be that way. I mean, I'm not going to change in that department. What I, what I am really striving to do, though, is being able to be more discerning with the individuals that I'm helpful with because a lot of people reach out to me that really all they care about is themselves. I mean, they're just not that helpful and they, you know, and I have this reputation of being a connector. <laughs> and I was having this conversation with uh, my friend JR the other day about I have this, you know, and even Dan Sullivan. I mean, I had a, a call with Dan this morning uh, with Dan and Babs just catching up, you know, just talking. And I, I, I have this reputation where, oh, you know, Joe knows how to connect people. And, and I cannot tell you how, you know, how much of a filter I am for other people where they're like, oh, can you introduce me to this person? And I have to decipher, you know, oh, can you send this email to Richard Branson? Can you send this email to Ariana Huffington? Can you contact Damon John? You know, because they know I know all these people. And I have this tendency to just want to say, oh, let me see what I can do. But now I'm just pausing a lot. There, there's a book called Essentialism uh, with uh, by Greg McEwen, who's you know, like you're going to be speaking at this year's Genius Network annual event, David, and Greg McEwen is going to be speaking at this year's annual event on essentialism, and you're going to be talking about probably this, and then we got Sean Aker who's going to be talking about happiness because I'm you know I'm really wanting to bring p 
people to these entrepreneurs and even for myself because I'm thinking, you know, what do I want actually here? What what it is I want to learn? And what I what I've learned is that I don't stop long enough sometimes to realize like do I really need to be taking my time to help this person? Would they do the same thing for me, for me? Not like a tip for tat sort of thing cuz I do plenty of stuff that, you know, I you know, I'm not doing it because I need the person to do something for me. It just is my, it's kind of like who I am. My MO is to try to be a, a, a helpful person. What I found, though, is that generosity, which at least I think it's generosity, is actually quite detrimental to me if I don't really evaluate what's the trade-off. Like, if I'm going to do this and take this time, like, what am I really, you know, what is the trade-off? And you know, I think you're very similar to me. I, I don't like saying no to people. I want to be helpful. And I get so many requests for interviews. You know, one of the things that and Dean does also, you know, whenever you put out a podcast like this, all kinds of people want to interview you for their shows. The challenge is there's an endless amount of people that are doing podcasts. There's an endless amount of people that are doing stuff. And I have to really sit and like, I don't want to reject the people, but at the same time, I, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking, you know, I have to restrict what it is I do to my Genius Network members. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come up with criteria with at least, you know, they're paying me. And, or it has to be something in the field of like addiction or helping addicts uh, or putting, you know, destigmatizing, you know, because those are my areas. My areas are, you know, entrepreneurship and helping people with addictions. And, and unless it really is aligned, I just have to say no to it. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I love talking with you about this is I'm sitting here taking notes of how I can apply what you learned into my own life. Because I think most, I think most of us struggle with this. And when I say most, I mean, most people that actually give a shit about other people, because there's a lot of people that they really don't. And, you know, they're, it's easy for them to say no, because all they care about is themselves. But when you actually, you know, when you actually do care about other people's requests, and you want to respond to them, it's, it's psychologically psychologically difficult. So, what what criteria have you developed of what you say yes to and what you say no to? I mean, how how do you think about what you take on and what you don't right now? Well, so in in 2013, I'll talk about 2013 and now 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 because it's different times, right? But in 2013, I was like, I'm going to say no to everything. Um, it's interesting because I only said yes to I said basically no to everything, but it happens to be I said no to. A, about two or three things. One of them was you, because you asked me to do a speech for a friend of ours, Neil Strauss, and he yep. was in New York. And, and you know, but that was a classic example. Like you're such a good buddy, and you like you were you were reaching out to me. And I'm like, God, you know, I've always wanted to meet Neil, and Neil's literally his his event was five minutes from my house, and so I'm like, okay, and Neil, I'm bringing my son. You know, so it was like, so but it, but if you look at now, I think the, the thing I've realized is that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So what I mean by that is that, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many days in the week. And, 24. Uh, yeah, and, and right. And, and so if I say yes to get on a plane and go do a speech, that's, that's two days away from my family, right? I mean, any way you look at it, it's two days away from my family. There's going to be a really big reason for me to go be away from my family for two days, and if I'm going to go do media, like, you know, I, I mean, I live in New York to do media, but, you know, anytime you go and do media, it's a half, it, it's, it's an hour there, it's an hour before the show goes on, then you do the show and then you go home. It's three or four hours. That's a half a day. Um, 
so I, I just I'm 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 becoming really I mean I've I've always been good about focus. And I think what I'm working on right now is my focus for the next three to five years. I'm kind of working on my game plan right now. And, you know, like you, I, you know, I can, ADD, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't categorize myself as they have any ADD, but I love shiny lights. And I'm like, here's your focus list, David. You know, like, here's the five things that you're focusing on. Are they on that list? Because if they're not, they don't get to go on the list. They get to go on the not now list or the no list, but they don't get to go on the we to do this, and I will tell you one thing I've also been working on, and this is kind of a mental shift for me. But it's this idea that I don't, I don't got to do anything. I get to do something, mm-hmm. and and you know, so I don't. I'm almost trying to change my thought process. Like uh, I got to go do this, and I got to go do that. No, no, I don't actually. I, 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 it's a choice, and I am choosing to do it. And one of the things I always try to remind myself is that. That great quote from Dan Sullivan, which is that a, um, oh my God, now I'm going to say I'm going to remember it. It's an obligation, a mess is a, what is it? Obligation without a commitment. commitment. (laughs) A mess is an obligation without a commitment. And I, you know, when people come to me for stuff, I'm just like, you know, am I really committed to this? Because if I'm not, I know myself. If I'm not committed to it, then it's a mess. Um, So... I'm sorry, buddy. I'm not, I've been talking a lot this hour. No, 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 no. This is this is all fantastic. What here's here's the thing, and we'll go we'll go a little few minutes over because this is really really good and really valuable. Uh, I then created a tool for Genius Network called the Not Now List because you told me that story. I can't remember the original person or yes. company, but it was a big uh, financial company and you were talking about the guy with the whiteboard and you went in yep. his office and he had the not now so can you i love and this this is a game this would be worth like so much to everybody listening if they just grasp this concept and you you taught it to me and i love it it's just such a great way to unload like this feeling like oh i got to do all these things well yeah you could but maybe not now okay. so yep so let me. I'm gonna, I, this may not be an exact quote, but, but I want to give the credit for where the story came from. And it came from a guy named Matt Coffin, and who had sold a company called LowerMyBills.com. And they were it, it, LowerMyBills.com is a lead generation website, and they, they got a huge price for it. And he was in my office, and I had a big whiteboard. And I was asking him because so many of the companies at the time that he was growing, there were there were a lot of companies that looked like his. And most of them didn't make it, and he made it to a huge exit. And I said to him, you know, what you guys were so focused on the way you did your business. What did you do differently than everybody else? And he shared the story with me about how, you know, like everybody else, they were trying to do everything. And finally, they're like, we're only going to do this one thing. And everything else, when you come into my office, you can bring it in my office. It's going on the not now list. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, literally, you can bring it in the office. But it's going on the not now list. You can stick it up on the wall, and it's not now. Because the only thing we're doing right now is this. And, you know, I'm like, God, that makes so much sense. And it's funny because I just clicked on a web, a video from Gary Vanderchuk, you know, and on the video, he was talking about focus, and he was talking about his buddy from Uber and how the CEO from Uber was, you know, he brought this – he was, I'm going to paraphrase this too, but he was telling the story about how he was bringing his buddy another deal to invest in, and his buddy at Uber was like, Gary, 
I'm not doing speeches. I'm not doing angel investments. I am focused on this business for the rest of my life. Like, like he's just, you know, this relentless focus. And I think, um, you know, it comes down to having a non-now list. <laughs> <laughs> and I think most of it, I think about 99% of things that come to us need to go on that not-now list. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if you've seen the tool that I created for Genius Network members on that one yet. Uh, but it's, it's just a sheet where people are like, okay, you know, what, what is your main focus and what are all the things that are great ideas that you really are, they're, they're consuming your thought process uh, and they're great ideas. They're, they're not, you know, bullshit things. And, they're, and they're, they're not only possible, but they're probable. However, if you focus on that, you're going to be taking that attention away from this. And so it gives people permission to put it on there. And, and like, you know, uh, like Ariana says, you know, one of the best ways to complete a project is to, is to drop it. And you, you can get to a point where you're like, oh, you know, it sounded really good, but giving yourself time to think about it, uh, you know, you really reevaluate your life. So after having had all this success, after having replaced your batteries and now you're still working on big things. And I'm still a believer of, you know, if I had all the money in the world, I, I would want to, to work uh, on things that, you know, really jazz me up. I get a huge reward in life out of producing more than I consume. At least that's how I try to operate. And I, and I think anything if people are just given money and you, you know better than anyone, uh, the whole born on third base and think they hit a triple or people that were born into money but really didn't earn money, most of them are not very, very happy. And many are miserable and many even commit suicide because they are just, they don't, there's this complexity that comes with it. So I think a lot of people think that money will solve all their problems, but you can have millions of dollars and still have created a, you know, a, a prison with golden bars. And you are smart enough to, to see all of that and rearrange your life in order to, uh, you know, to make this, to make this big shift. And so, uh, final pieces of advice that you would give uh, the vast majority of people that are listening live in the results economy. They're, they're entrepreneurs, they're small business owners, or they're people that work in a company, but they want to have their own business or they want to, they're in careers that how much money they make uh, is totally contingent upon, you know, their ability to produce a result and, you know, making money is one thing, saving money and investing money are, are two different things. So out of all the stuff that David Bach has done, uh, you know, any other words of wisdom or anything that we didn't ask you that we should have asked you that you would like to speak to. And then I want to give the listeners, you know, your, your websites and anything that you recommend of yours that they should look at, read, invest in, attend, whatever. So that's kind of how I want to wrap this up. And I, I spent way too much time talking. Like, don't you love my questions are like 10 minute long statements and pontifications and just well, well, tangents. I'd like to interview. I, mean, I, again, I love listening to you, and I barely got to hear Dean talk today. I mean, you guys are such, you, both of you are so amazing. And you, you're, you are a giver, by the way, Joe. You're the biggest giver I know. Um, and I think you know, you're such a classic example. Of you have made a success of your life by doing what you love, and you love people, and you've built an entire huge business and brand around. The reality is you are a connector. And you are a giver, and so, I don't know, I just feel really grateful that you and I got to meet all the way back in 97, and we've built a friendship over all these years, um, and yeah, you are you. a classic example of somebody, um, really, I can, I can list a handful of people like this, that 
you always have given to me and never asked for anything in return, which makes me always want to give to you. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's the way, that's the way it works. And, um, you know, I just, uh, this is going to go off, off, um, in a tangent way, but everything I've tried to teach people is really about how to live their best life. Like to me, the whole part about money is just the, the reason to get your money fixed is that when you fix your finances, you free yourself. And so my belief is that we've got this, you know, we're all given these God, these God given talents and that, that we've all got these special things inside of us that need to come out. And so often what holds us back is our finances. So when you fix your finances, you free yourself. So, you know, that's a big reason I want to teach people about their money. It's not the money. It's to, it's to free yourself to live your best life. And most parts of living your best life, it actually doesn't take money. And I, I guess it's going to take us a little bit in the spiritual part here. But um, I think a really important thing is to have your I love you's in check. And, and what I mean by that, and I haven't really ever talked about this, it's just this is kind of where I'm evolving to. Is I, I think when I look at my sabbatical, the best part of my sabbatical was I got to spend time with the people I love the most. And, you know, my realization from that sabbatical was, you know, everybody who really loves me, like the people I really spend time with, none of them give a shit what I do work-wise. They were just excited right. to be with, to spend time with me. All my friends from high school and college, like, they don't care that I, they were like, great, you're on a sabbatical, you're not working, so I can see you. Like, yeah, and, 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 it got in the way more than anything, probably, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think my kids, like, just like to have me around, and I, I, I guess the realization, I mean, like, you know, this idea of having your love, I love you in check, you know, we always think we're going to get time to, sp- to spend with people we love, like, you know, I'll see you in a year, or I'll, you know, we don't spend enough time with the people that we love, and I, I've been really trying to you know, say to my friends, like, you know, call your parents, like, call mom and dad, and you know, call your brother and your sister and call that friend that you haven't talked to in a while that you miss. Like, like do it now. You know, maybe make a, maybe instead of making a list of, like, your, your business stuff today, why don't you make a list of the ten people that you love the most and call one a day for the next ten days. And just call them and tell them, you know what, I was listening to this podcast about who I love the most in life, and you're on my list, man. And I just want you to know I love you, and, and I just, you know, tell a person all the reasons you love them. Tell them now instead of waiting, because sometimes we don't get a chance to tell the people we love, and then they're gone. And so I would just, I guess, end this by saying, you know, pick up the phone today and call somebody you love that you haven't connected with in a while, and tell them how much you love them and how much you've missed them, because they probably love you and miss you too. That is really, really good advice. Uh, a list of 10 people you love the most and call them and tell them now that you do. I mean, tr- truly, it's, it, that may sound simple to some people and like, oh, well, yeah, that sounds good, but, but to re- really do that. And I, I, I will tell you, you know, but most of my parents are, 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 are dead. Uh, my father died in 2003. I spent the, the last year of his life, you know, pretty much being his primary caretaker. And I got to spend a, a good chunk of time with him. And we, we didn't have the greatest relationship. My father was very, a very broken person in a lot of ways because my mother died when I was four. And he was literally spent most of his life heartbroken from that. Never really overcame it because he just didn't quite know how. But he, you know, he tried the best he knew how to do. And and people like some of my closest um, friends have have died. I've had those situations, and 
you know, it, there's a lot to be said. They, they, something can be gone immediately. And, and you, if you don't take the time for it now, you will regret it later. It's just like your health. If you don't take time out for your health now, you're going to take time out with poor health later. So it's, there are assets and you got to protect the asset and the asset is you, the asset is your relationship. The asset is your family the asset is your loved ones. And that's, it. that's really profound advice um, that, that you just gave there. So thank you. Um, yeah, you are so welcome. Dean, uh, since you've been like dominating this whole conversation, is there anything <laughs> that you want to final uh, words I, just to get the last word in or something? Although it'll probably be me yeah, that gets exactly. the last word. No, I think that was uh, fantastic, David. I mean, it's you know I don't know how many people that are listening to this have thought or fantasized about taking a sabbatical, and I think that the kind of practical stuff that you shared about it is going to motivate some people, even if it's not they take a year, but maybe take a summer or take the month of December, you know, or do just something to uh, you know get recharged. Your voice just sounds energized, which is exciting. Yeah, and we, well, we do know at least several hundred thousand people will listen to this over the next few weeks, yeah. which is which is good. And what I what I would encourage people, there's wisdom here coming from David that if you know a busy, overworked, burnt out uh, business owner, male, female, whatever, uh, please share this episode with him and tell him in the later part of it. You know, we talk about David's you know marketing success in the beginning, but we really get into taking care of yourself later into it. I mean, it could really shift someone's whole life in perspective. Just, I mean, this is one of those episodes where someone could hear it and it could really save them from heart attacks. It could save them from complete and utter burnout. And, and seeing a guy as busy as David, who has you know, more opportunities thrown at him every week than some people get in a lifetime. And, and to get to the point mentally where he could still say, no, I've got to take care of myself. I got to re- recharge or replace my batteries. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. I mean, anyone that's not running an empire can say, well, you don't need to show up to work and deal with all these obligations. But when you're, when you're running a big machine, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot easier to talk about it than it is to actually do it and to and to set it up, but he he pulled it off and and where you are on the other side is you know just a game changer and I think this this episode would be a real game changer for a lot of people so so please share this episode, please comment on what you thought about it uh, at i love marketing dot com uh, david what where what, now what do you recommend for what you're doing right now books that you know obviously read the automatic millionaire. Uh, you can read all of David's books. They're great. Uh, wh- what what can people do to get plugged into the current stuff that you're you're up to, and 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 what are you most excited about right now? Well, first of all, guys, thank you so much. I've I loved doing this with you, and I can't wait to see you at your conference. Um, and Dean, I'm going to follow up with you later about what we talked about earlier about doing doing a sabbatical book together. So, um, you know, where I would send people come to my website, finishrich.com. Uh, finishrich.com. I'm excited to get involved in updating that website because the website needs a whole new refresh, so we're working on that. Um, but finishrich.com, you can join our, our community where we've got hundreds of thousands of people, and I'll keep you abreast of the new stuff we got going on. Uh, and facebook.com, David Bach, you can join our community. I'd love to hear if people enjoyed enjoyed this podcast. Come on, come on Facebook and tell me what you thought. Um, because to me, this is like a new part of my journey. I haven't really talked about the sabbatical, and I'd love to hear if this is resonating with people and, and hear what questions you have. Um, and, you know, ironically, what I'm excited the most, well, I don't know if ironic, what I'm 
the most excited about right now is that I am actually in the in, come September first, I am updating uh, the Automatic Millionaire, and oh, wow. I'm and I'm updating that book because it, first of all, it's been ten years. And when I went out on the road this year, so many people share with me how that book had changed their life and and asked me, like, well, what's changed? And I realized, you know, if I only have a year left to live, that's the one book I want to make sure is updated and I can get that, continue to get that message out to people. So I'm updating that book. I'm going to create a new program to continue to teach that uh, next year. And so I'm super, super passionate about about that. And then... Um, I think I'm going to do a book on sabbatical. I, I haven't figured out yet exactly what that book looks like, but I'm going to start writing that book uh, as a gift to give to friends. And um, I want to I want to I want to start sharing this message about the sabbatical because I think that it, that it really can help a lot of people. And I think it's not you don't need a year off, but I think everyone could start thinking about this idea of taking a month or two months or three month break at some point in the next two or three years. And I think if more, I think we need to rethink the concept of retirement. I think working our whole life to retire in our 60s or our 70s uh, is in some ways it's almost antiquated. And I think we should start thinking through how we can do breaks more often. Um, because I think if we take more breaks, we're going to go a lot longer in life and we're going to be of service more in life. And so I want to, I want to, I want to figure out how I can be an advocate for that. Um, and, and it's funny because I want to end on talking about somebody else's book for one second. You know, you and I are friends with, our, you know, Ariane Huffington. Um, yep. And you, I know you promoted her book, Thrive. I still talk about Thrive because I think that that right now is the best book out there on, on this whole idea of, of this changing the way we think about our lives. So until I write my book on the sabbatical, I think the book Thrive, if you haven't read that book yet, people need to go out and read that book. Um, because I think it is time for us to rethink our priorities in life. And, you know, you can be an entrepreneur and be in touch with your soul and have your I love you's in check. It is actually all possible. So I want to give that gift to more people. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And by the way, people at ilovemarketing.com can watch the interview video with uh, Ariana on Thrive uh, right there, which is great. And if you do want to see David... Uh, in person, uh, meet him in person, uh, you know, geniusnetworkevents.com. David will be presenting uh, this year, and uh, the event is almost sold out. So we will have it sold out in literally the next three weeks. It'll be completely sold out. So, uh, yeah, but if you're interested, geniusnetworkevents.com. That's for, you know, obviously high-level entrepreneurs. And yeah, I'd love to hear the comments, uh, everyone. So please post them. And again, share this episode. We'd really appreciate it. I know it'd be helpful for so many people. And you're a rock star, David. So thank you for taking the time. And and, and this love here, you know, always great talking with you. And I do want to read that book. So write that book on the sabbatical, because that, that is so... That that's so right. What I what I love to just digest right now, and it's good stuff. So thanks for I'll taking your, the time. I'll be your sabbatical coach, Joe. Perfect. Ah, <laughs> well, yeah, you yeah, you have no. You you've just created an obligation on that one. But it, <laughs> it'll, it, it'll be it'll be it'll be worthwhile. And so thanks and uh, thanks everyone. And we'll talk to you on the uh, next episode of I Love Not Mark. Awesome guys. Be well. <laughs>